Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences, so there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Hi, this is Jim. And this is Max. Check out our podcast, The Step Over, Liberty Ballers Podcast Network, for all of your Sixers' needs. Player analysis, game breakdowns, who would look coolest in a headband, and more. Subscribe to Liberty Ballers podcast feed on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, and check out The Step Over, a podcast about Sixers basketball. Mostly. Welcome into the QB Sco Show, Episode 1. Brought to you by SB Nation and Bleeding Green Nation. I am your host, Michael Kist. Follow me on Twitter at Michael Kist NFL. On this show, every week, we'll be taking an in-depth look at enemy quarterbacks, where they win, how they lose, and what to expect in upcoming games. It would not be the SCO show without my co-host. Don't call him a QB expert because his face will contort uncomfortably, but he knows his stuff from Pro Football Weekly, The Score, Big Blue View, Locked On Patriots, Inside the Pylon. He's my buddy. He's my pal. He's my own personal QB1. He's Mark Schofield. Mark, I am excited to be doing this new project with you. How you doing, brother? I'm doing well, my friend. I am excited as well. Although, I'm hoping that this show has better runs than, say, the Michael Malley show, which <laughs> the older generation might know was, was a short-lived sitcom that ran for one episode. It was canceled after just seven days. And to put it in terms that you will appreciate, I hope this has a better reign than, say, Emperor Vitellius, whose reign at the end of the year of four emperors lasted just eight months. Although, Mike, what has me a little concerned is that Emperor Vitellius was known as a lazy and self-indulgent pers- indulgent personality. He was a man who was fond of eating and drinking. Yes. He was a glutton. He was rather obese, would eat four banquets a day. And as someone who has spent time with me down in Mobile, you know I am also fond of eating and drinking. So this, this could be an Emperor Vitellius type reign, but we hope not here at this show. Emperor Vitellius's bust, like if you if you look him up on Google, his bust, he's just he's like the only one of the emperors that just like they make it obvious that he's overweight. It's awesome. He does yeah. not look like Yeah, I mean they, they don't they don't hide it at all. I mean this is what he was known for because he didn't do anything. <laughs> the guy sat, ate and drank for eight months and they were like, all right. That's enough. <laughs> Sounds amazing. That that would be my yeah. So That would be a heck of a rain. <laughs> follow Mark on uh, Twitter. It's real basic, at Mark Schofield. And follow his work at all these places that he writes for. He does fantastic jobs uh, spinning plates and bringing detailed analysis on all teams and quarterbacks. And that's why we're doing this. I trust Mark's quarterback evaluations like no other. And I look forward to breaking down these opposing quarterbacks. and talking about some Roman emperors. That's pretty dope. And here's why I lean on somebody like Mark to give me a better perspective because I truly believe that quarterback play is the most complicated, hardest to learn, least understood aspect of professional football, and yet it is the most talked about, most popular, most divisive subject matter in all of professional sports. And Mark, I asked you the other day, but I'll ask you again here, 
with what you know about the position and how long you've been detailing this stuff and even playing the, the position in college, how do you log on Twitter every day and see all of these misleading discussions surrounding the position and just not want to faceplant yourself into a toilet? Well, you're assuming that I don't <laughs> want to faceplant myself into a, a toilet or a vomitorium or pull an Emperor Vitalis and just go eat four banquets a day and log off from this website we all know and love. But you know, part of it is quarterback play, studying quarterback play, thinking about quarterbacks. There is such an objective as well as a subjective component to it. You know, you could look at objective stuff like adjusted net yards per attempt. You could look at passer rating. You could look at air yards, depth of target, time to throw, all these sort of objective numbers that are out there and say, you know, this is why a quarterback's good or bad. But there's also the subjective component as well as the schematic component. You might say, look, a quarterback's getting the ball out of his hand so quickly. He's got to be great against the blitz. He's got to be fantastic against pressure. The fastest guy in terms of time to throw this year is Sam Bradford, right. who's currently employed by as many NFL teams as I am. <laughs> and so you can't just rely on pure numbers. You've got to dive into the tape. But when you do that, you've got to adjust for scheme. You've got to adjust for the subjective components. For example, a guy that you and I both know, a guy that I do work with, uh, Matt Waldman, for example. Mm -hmm. He and I do a show every month on quarterbacks. We work together over at the Matt Waldman RSP. We talk about quarterbacks all the time. Sometimes we'll sit down and just chat for quarterbacks on the phone because we're bored and we're angry at the timeline, <laughs> which happens more often than people might expect. <laughs> he and I view quarterbacks differently. He prefers the the Favs, the, the gunslinger types, the guys that can do stuff off structure. I know this year, for example, he's going to love Will Greer, whereas me right. – I like the Brett Rippins, yeah. the guys that do the little things, the guys that do the small things with their eyes and with touch and anticipation and feel and make plays from the pocket. And so you have two guys right there, myself and Matt, that spend way too much time thinking about studying quarterbacks, and you'll get two different QB1s from them. And, that, and that's part of the reason why quarterback debates can often be just so unfruitful and almost annoying because – there is a subjective component to it where guys have their preferences. Men and women have their preferences on how they want quarterbacks to play and what they want a good quarterback to look like and how they operate in and outside of the pocket that you're just going to get wildly divergent opinions. And then, of course, there are the other opinions, which are so wild, galaxy brain type things that <laughs> we don't have to go into. Sure. But suffice to say, there, there are opinions out there that have, say, Mitchell Trubisky as a higher you know, ranked quarterback than Carson Wentz going into the season or opinions out there that may have a guy like Mason Rudolph as the best quarterback prospect <laughs> in the past 10 years. Right. Like there are galaxy of brain type opinions, which we just look at, we point and we move on. Yeah. And, and we could talk about this for hours. And I really do enjoy listening to you and Matt Waldman talk about that over there at Matt Waldman RSP. So if you guys haven't heard that yet, go check that out as well. But we got to dig into this Eagles Cowboys Sunday night football game big game mark let's get into Dak Prescott who will be the topic of this show and I want to look back before we look forward so coming out of Mississippi State he winds up as a fourth round selection 135th overall takes the league by storm his rookie year we all know the story looking back on his career arc and your evaluation of him as a prospect how would you say your expectations lined up with how everything has unfolded over the years for Prescott yeah, what's been fascinating, Michael, about Prescott is, and I'll say this up front, I was not a fan, to put it mildly. He was QB 19 for me in that class. He was behind Christian Hackenberg in that class. And where I came down on it was when I studied him at Mississippi State, I saw a flaw that I thought 
was almost fatal with him, and that was one of ball placement. When you when you study quarterbacks, there are certain things you can sort of overcome as you develop, you know, process and speed. You can get faster reading defenses, things like that. You know, anticipation, you can start to learn how to get the ball out quicker, and that also comes hand in hand with process and speed and diagnosing things faster. But if you can't put the ball where it needs to be, and I'm not talking like, you know, he's missing on post routes and putting it on the wrong shoulder 45 yards downfield. I'm talking like swing routes out of the backfield and you're mm-hmm. forcing your running backs to make adjustments. You know, missing throws on quick out routes and, you know, comeback routes where you're not putting it where it needs to be. It shows you that you don't really understand the leverage that you're seeing from the secondary and from underneath defenders and things like that. If you're not putting the ball where it needs to be, that's a hard thing to fix when you get to the NFL. And so that's why I was so down on him. Now, like you said, he had that incredible rookie year, MVP rookie of the year type numbers. And so when, you know, after two years of each draft class, I take a look back at my rankings and how I viewed some certain prospects. And while you might think that I'm doing it as a victory lap, you know, pace of that class where I had golf one once too. No, I was really sort of focused on what did I miss on Prescott to have him have this sort of success. And where I sort of came down on, and I had it in my notes, was competitive toughness. You know, people say, what is that? What does that mean? It's sort of that ability that you need as a quarterback to sort of fight through mistakes, to get better, to make a mistake, say, in the first quarter, see a different look or even a slightly variation of that look later in the game and not make the same mistake, to learn from your mistakes from, you know, game to game, drive to drive, snap to snap even. And I had that in my notes on Prescott, but I missed weighing it appropriately. And that's why probably the next draft class, maybe I swung too wildly in the other direction and had Deshaun Watson QB1 because of his competitive toughness. Right. But you know that that competitive toughness, it sort of allowed him to improve on his ball placement, his throw and his mechanics to a certain extent. Now, we're seeing some of that though still rear its ugly head. Obviously, last year they had some protection problems. And into this year, we're seeing that failure of ball placement coupled with a failure to properly anticipate on throws, which has led to some struggles this year. So let's do some box score scouting on this year the most misleading way to scout of them all. But uh, Dak is completing 63% of his passes, a 7.0 yards per attempt average, 10 touchdowns, 5 interceptions. The last two years have not been kind to him, and last year was kind of an up-and-down affair where I thought he was solid in the first half of the season and regressed in the second half. And looking at this year-to-year, there's one stat that really stands out to me. And that is his 10.6% sack rate. It's a career high for him by a lot. And some of that you can put on the offensive line. There's no doubt about that. This is not the same unit as the 2016 unit. And with the loss of Connor Williams this week, it looks even worse. But what I see when I watch Dak, and we talked about this last night, me and you, you, you watch him in week one against the Carolina Panthers and other weeks too. But this one stands out because he took a season high six sacks. And anytime it seemed that the Panthers threw games at him, like a tackle end exchange, Dak saw the light in front of him and he sprinted right into that trap. And I asked Benjamin Solak about this earlier on another show, on the Kiss and Solak show. And I've since watched more film and I've kind of modified what my game plan would be if I'm Jim Schwartz. I'm not concerned about blitzing Dak to get pressure, but what I might do is I might throw in some stunts to his ball hand side, show him a window in which to escape the pocket because we know he likes to hold on to the ball longer than a lot of other quarterbacks, but bait him with that escape window. And then when that stunt runs its course, you're you're closing it right back up. So essentially let Dak come to you like a moth to a flame. Do you see a similar thing when you watch Prescott in regard to his pocket awareness and it leading to unnecessary sacks? Absolutely. And it's sort of... 
almost a natural progression or regression of things when you start having protection problems up front. And we remember last year, Adrian Claiborne got paid because he was basically up against a turnstile that game against Atlanta where he had like six sacks against yeah. you know their backup tackle. When you're a quarterback and you start getting pressured and you start getting flustered, you start getting moved off the spot quicker in a play than you'd like, but you're also an athletic quarterback, you're going to do what muscle memory is going to take over and you're going to start relying on your legs to make plays. And Prescott's an athletic quarterback. And so what's happening is, and that Carolina Graham is a perfect example because on two different occasions, he ran straight into sacks on dual t- tight end and or tax type stunts where you have those defensive tackles sort of looping around and you see that C sort of part in front of it and you think, oh, there's grass in front of me. I'm getting pressured, but here's a chance for me to pick up some yardage with my legs, not make a throw, not hold on to the football, not get hit. And he's running right into the loopers as they crash around. And that's, you know, to your point, like moth to a flame type situations. I don't think you need to blitz this kid, but I do think you've got to use twist games up front, show him escape lanes because now he's in his own head. Now he's into that mode where, look, I'm getting pressured. We can't protect me. I got to make things happen with my legs. I don't trust what's happening in terms of blocking in front of me. If I see land, I'm going to tuck it and go. He's dropping his eyes now. And that's often a way to get young passers to make mistakes is because they're so afraid of getting sacked, getting hit. They drop their eyes. They look for escape routes. And that also leads to missing opportunities downfield. And now there's also a Scott Linehan problem here, which we can get to. You know, yeah. But you know, what I think your point about how you're going to attack Dak Prescott is more with four and five and twist games rather than six and seven blitzing and playing you know, cover zero, cover one behind it. Kind of, kind of in that same line when we talk about pressure and pressuring him. I'm, I'm by no means an expert when it comes to quarterback footwork, but what I see from Dak, me personally, is some frantic pocket movement that isn't conducive to being ready to throw after your initial move inside the pocket. And this is something Carson Wentz talked about in, in the offseason regarding his improvement from year one to year two, and it was the first thing that stood out for me and Benjamin Solak when we watched him in the preseason in year two. The ability to move within the pocket, whether it be hitching up or sliding to a side to move away from pressure, and having your feet in a position to set up for a fundamentally sound throw, right? Building that house from the foundation, being your feet. As I said, Dak, to me, his feet are a bit of a mess when he's forced off the spot. And even when he's not forced, when he just moves, if it's not a design rollout, when he moves inside the pocket, he's late to set up to throw. I think it's causing some of that spike in sacks, and it's throwing off his accuracy. Would you agree with that take, Mark? I would. And the thing with Prescott right now is he is more off platform than on regardless of play, situation, pressure, and scheme. And it's because of what we were just talking about. When you're continually looking for an escape route and feeling that pressure, you know, I've often equated, you know, pressure in a quarterback to those early rounds of a boxing match when you bank those body blows. Yeah, it doesn't look great on the scorecard. Yeah, you're not getting the knockout. But you're building that foundation for the later rounds when you've worn that guy down, you've worked the body, and now you can finish him off. It's the same thing to pressure at a quarterback. You get to him early. You get him off the spot. Then he changes from a mental perspective to the point where he's dropping his eyes, he's looking for escape routes, and then it translates to the footwork where if you're constantly off platform, you're not going to make accurate throws. And look at that game Monday night. They had a great chance to put one one in the end zone. They call for a play action play. And he makes this 
fading away, back foot, yeah. off of his back foot, like fadeaway throw into double coverage for an interception. Why? Because of all the stuff we've been talking about. And yes, he was yeah. pressured a little bit, but not enough where he needed to make that throw. There was still enough room there to create space. Again, like a boxer, create enough space with your feet to make a fundamentally sound throw where you can get more on it or throw it out of the back of the end zone. But because yeah. of everything else, he's so afraid of the pressure and he's so afraid that he might not get another opportunity that he makes the risky throw and it's a pick and that sort of changes the course of that game early. Keeping in line with, you know, using his legs and you alluded to Scott Linehan before, I suggested on the Kiss and Solak show utilizing play action more for a mobile quarterback like Dak who has to stand and deliver in front of a struggling offensive line and he's having his own issues within that pocket. I also suggested weaponizing his legs within structure in the read option game to bring some diversity to this offense and give the defense something extra to think about and respect. Is that the route that you think Dallas should go and is this is there, is there more that they can do that they aren't doing right now schematically to help Dak get back on track? Think about two and now a third recent sort of play callers and what they've done with quarterbacks to make the game easier for them, make them more comfortable and help them out and then to help them play better. Think last hmm. year, Andy Reid, Alex Smith, what does he do? Hmm. They go to his playbook at the University of Utah under Urban Meyer. They pull some stuff out of that, some stuff he's comfortable running. Helps him feel better in the pocket. Alex Smith has basically a career year last year. Obviously, you know, he's now in Washington, but that's because he had Patty Mahomes coming behind him. Look at Matt Nagy right now. What Matt Nagy yeah. is doing with Mitchell Trubisky. Whenever Trubisky starts to struggle, or sometimes even early in games, what does he do? Pulls a little read option. Let's him gives him a chance to pull the ball, run around the edge, get into the flow of the game, get into the feel of the game a bit. It, yeah, it works to keep the backside defensive end honest. Yeah, it gives you a nice, easy game, but it gets your quarterback comfortable. And now, just now, Browns, they fire Hugh Jackson, they fire Todd Haley. What have they done? They go to Baker Mayfield and they're basically saying, what do you want to run? What makes you comfortable? Mm. That's what you've got to do with your quarterback when he's struggling. And so Scott Linehan needs to take his third and 13, we're going to run all curls off of a seven-step <laughs> drop. And he needs to fire that page out of the playbook into the sun. Because if I see it one yeah. more time, and I'm a Patriots fan, but if I see that one more time, I'm getting on a flight. It's going to be like Stewie when he saw a Will Ferrell movie <laughs> and he bought a plane ticket, went to the airport, yeah. flew cross country, uh -huh. got the ladder, uh -huh. rang the doorbell and punched Will Ferrell in the face. Because that's what I'm going to do to Scott Linehan if I see that all curls all sticks concept one more time you do rpo stuff you get him in the read option you use his legs a little bit you get him into the flow of the game and you don't have to have a great ground game to be successful on play option look at last year at washington washington did not run the ball well but they were one of the teams that made the biggest jump from non-play action passing plays to play action passing plays because just the mere fact that you change those eye levels on the second and third level defenders, you can have success throwing the football, get more play action involved, get more RPOs involved, and take Sticks concept out of the playbook. They will be much better off if they do that. If they don't, well, hey, Eagles, Redskins fans, rejoice. What do you think is the ceiling for Dak Prescott? Do you think the ceiling is, let's use some scouting academy verbiage here. We often talk about this on the, the Kiss and Solak show as far as tiers and, you know, is he a starter you win because of? Is he a starter you win with? Or is he a starter that you win in spite of? What do you believe his true ceiling to be? And let's just put it within realistic expectations. Let's say, say he takes a step forward and that's consistent for him. Where do you think he is as a player? I think he's more in that starter you win with not because of 
sort of tier. Okay. But a lot, do you think a lot would have to go right for him schematically and for his own development for him to hit that? Is he near that right now? Yeah, because right now I, I think he's more the starter that you need help. Yeah. If they do some different things schematically like we were just talking about, he's more than that starter that you win with that – you know, in a certain game, maybe on a drive or two, you know, he can put the offense on his shoulders, but he's not doing that week in and week out. So I do think there will need to be some sort of development as well as some schematic assistance to get him to that point. If you had asked me this question, you know, back in his rookie year, I would have said, yeah, easily. Right. Look, he, he's a guy that you could almost see him pushing into that starter you win because of type tier. But we've seen some of the regression. And now what it becomes to is to where we started, that competitive toughness. Did I miss that or not? You know, did I really right. miss that or so is weird. that inside of him still or is it was it not really there? It was just kind of a mirage in his rookie season. And that to bring us to our first point overall, we're bringing this whole thing full circle here. Yeah. That's why it's so hard to talk about quarterbacks. That's why it's so hard to study <laughs> quarterbacks because there's so much going on that even if you have the all 22 or if you're just a live football guy, no matter what your exposure is – you're not there all of the time. You don't know truly what's yeah. going on in this guy's head. And you might have the playbook. You might actually get your hands on a, a bootleg copy of Scott Linehan's playbook, which is probably six pages, <laughs> and you still won't know what's going on because it changes from drive to drive, play to play, week to week, adjustments whatsoever. That's why it's so hard because ultimately you could break these guys down six ways to Sunday, but it's that muscle between the ears that is going to determine so much of what happens with these guys when they hit the field. That dovetailed beautifully, Mark. Way to, way to close it out. That was nice. There's a reason that, I don't know, I don't get paid that much, but there's a reason that I actually make money doing this, and it's because <laughs> it's because of the Toto takes. I know. It's because of the yeah, Toto exactly. takes. Yeah. You're going to see Toto tonight. I am. I am going to see Toto tonight. So if you do follow me on Twitter, <laughs> mute me tonight, okay? Just remember to unmute me tomorrow, but I understand if you got to mute me tonight. You don't. When we saw the upside down Le'Veon Bell tweet, I actually tweeted out a total lyric upside down. And somebody legit quote tweeted me saying muted. And it's like, (laughs) why? Just mute me. Don't tell me you're going to mute me. Just go ahead and mute me. Like mute me, block me. I don't care. Don't tell me you're going to do it. It's like like the people that say, oh, this is such a bad take. I'm going to unfollow you now. Okay. Just do it. Don't tell me. We don't negotiate with terrorists because we are terrorists. That's exactly right. That's not going to work on me. That's exactly right. (laughs) So, Mark, before we go, uh, thank you so much for this. Actually, do you have a prediction for the game? Uh, Eagles, Cowboys, you just want to throw one out there? I'll say this. I was on a radio show shortly after the Cooper trade was announced, and I was asked, you know, is this going to revitalize the offense? Is this going to help Dak Prescott? And I asked, is Amari Cooper going to be calling the plays? Is he going to be designing <laughs> up the route concepts? Is he going to be putting together the game scripts? Oh, it's it's no to all of those? Oh, well, then I'm not expecting much. I'm understanding unless something has happened. I'm checking with my producers now. No, Scott Linehan is still the offensive coordinator. So my prediction is the Eagles are going to win this game, you know, because nice. that's that's the problem right now with the offense. The, the, the schematic stuff is wrong. They, they do some stuff every now and again with the RPOs and the read options. They'll come to slant flat and suddenly D- Dak Prescott looks like a world beater because he's running something that my cat ran in high school. But <laughs> until they do some more stuff schematically, I don't see this offense putting enough points. And then you look at the Eagles, you look at Sean Lee being down. 
as long as you don't throw it anywhere near Byron Jones, I think you're going to be okay. So, yeah, I I think the Eagles are going to win this game. Yeah, I I feel like they try to get Dak into a rhythm early, much like they did against the Titans with some slants, and they're going to hit some curls and try to get him into a rhythm, and then everything's just going to fall apart when they fall outside of that opening script because, as you said, Linehan's playbook is super small and 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 super boring. Here's the other thing. Yes, Amari Cooper runs great double move routes. He runs great slugger routes. I'm sure Eagles fans are worried. Oh, my God. Yeah. They had that against Tennessee, and Dak threw it like 10 yards out of bounds. And so how many is Dak going to hit right now? Right now, odds show us not that many. Mark, before we go, we have a special interview to run here with Mahomi from Blogging the Boys. He's the host of Ochoa Live. He's RJ Ochoa. He's going to help us preview this Eagles-Cowboys game from a Dallas viewpoint. So, Mark, grab a drink, maybe a spike seltzer, and let's kick it over to that right now, and we'll be right back. How you doing, brother? I have been better, if I'm being honest. Uh, so, uh, you know, things are uh, things are all right in the cowboy land. Before we get into all that, let the gentle listeners know, RJ, where they can find all of your excellent work. Well, I uh, I am the man at blogontheboys.com, so you can certainly check us out over there. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at RJ Ochoa. Same handle on Instagram, if uh, that's your thing. Um, not really a whole lot of bragging going on. So if you want to come in soft, now's the time. So RJ, let's talk about some larger themes before we dig into the minutia of this game. Uh, much to the dismay of Cowboys fans, recently Jerry Jones has said that he does not plan on making a coaching change in season. However, he did say the same thing or a similar thing about Wade Phillips about eight years ago or so and did in fact make a change What are we to believe of this situation? Uh, What do you believe is the potential straw that breaks the camel's back in this? Because I would argue a loss to Philadelphia that puts them at three and six would in fact be that straw. Or am I misunderstanding the whole landscape of the organization? No, I think that you're fair and you're certainly coming from a, a point of objectivity and a point of logic. It was eight years ago. In fact, it was on November 5th that Jerry publicly backed Wade Phillips. Coincidentally, he publicly backed uh, Jason Garrett on November 5th of this year. And it was later that week, eight years ago, when the Cowboys were on the road for a Sunday night football game and they got roundhoused by one of the hot young quarterbacks in the NFL who was in his third season. Uh, His name's Aaron Rodgers. Uh, So a lot of that sort of cosmic energy, obviously repeating with the Cowboys on the road this Sunday night against a hot young quarterback with a Super Bowl championship already in his third season. I I have to believe that if the Cowboys just got, I mean, just absolutely destroyed by the Eagles, that some sort of change would happen. I think that might be the the final sort of life out of the nine for maybe Scott Linehan. (laughs) But it does seem like maybe Jerry is determined to ride this Jason Garrett thing at the very least. Uh, to the end of the season. That's sort of the the sense and vibe that I've gotten all season long. Okay. And then moving on from that, Jerry Jones has also stated that Dak Prescott would get extended. It's no secret that Dak has struggled. Uh, How much of his drop in play is maybe due to a a lack of weapons up until at least the recent acquisition of Amari Cooper? Also, he's dealing with a banged up offensive line that has severely regressed in the past couple of years. And then he's also dealing with what I see as a vanilla, unimaginative offensive scheme. So with all of that qualified What's the feeling in Dallas about a Dak extension and his play to this point in the season? Well, obviously, I think the dollars around a hypothetical extension would dictate how everybody felt. If if Dak gets relatively fair backup quarterback, even starting quarterback money in the NFL, I think, you know, it's it's not the worst thing in the world. And and that's sort of where I took 
Jerry's comments. I think Jerry was kind of flexing. It, it really felt like a frustrated uh, sort of response by him. Like, hey, everybody remember, I, I run this team, I call the shots, etc. Um, but I think the consensus on Dak is that he certainly regressed, largely in part due to whatever coaching and whatever advice he's gotten from Scott Linehan or whoever it may be, you know, I think it's important to also qualify that Dak's quarterback's coach is Kellen Moore, who he beat out for the job uh, that he currently holds, which is just an absurd thing that in a season with so much depending on it, the Cowboys relegated so much trust to Kellen Moore. But I think, you know, what you're saying is fair. The Cowboys offensive line hasn't been the unit that it's been in seasons past. They do now have Amari Cooper, who certainly has inspired some confidence they don't have the run game going to the level that Dak has had typically over the course of his career so far. And the man up top seems to have his fair share of question marks at minimum in Jason Garrett. So I think everybody's inclined to give Dak a pass under a new head coach, new offensive coordinator, and hope that there's some sort of Jared Goff effect uh, under Sean McVay. But mm. right, right about now, that's all everybody has to cling to. So uh, full disclosure, I think Amari Cooper put on a terrific display of route running in his debut for the Cowboys. Obviously wasn't enough, only 14 points from the offense. But how are Dallas fans feeling about giving up a first round pick that just became a little more expensive with this loss to the Titans? Well, I think that when you look at what Amari did on Monday night, and granted it was only one game, I, I agree with you. I think he played very well. And I think that if you're looking for anything to be excited about, it's certainly Amari Cooper. Yeah. And I think that in a vacuum, Amari Cooper played like he was worth a first-round draft pick, if that makes sense. But it just it's a lot harder to swallow. It's just a bigger pill that you have to swallow with the way the Cowboys are and the way the coaching situation is and the way Dak has played. And so while you can acknowledge that Amari has played like he's worth that price, you can also at the same time acknowledge that it's just it's hard to it's hard to live with. It's hard to deal with. And yeah. so I think that's the the rock and a hard place that Cowboys fans have found themselves stuck between. But, you know, at this point, you kind of you just have to power through because the deal's been done. And I'll tell you this, as an Eagles fan, I would much prefer the first round pick uh, as as it was for the 2019 pick on the field than Amari Cooper right now, because obviously picks don't play. But maybe that helps them. Maybe it doesn't uh, get back into contention in the NFC East. Let's flip it over to the defense, RJ. Is the loss of linebacker Sean Lee to a hamstring injury being overstated right now with the maybe with the national media with the emergence of both Jalen Smith and rookie Leighton Vander Esch? You know, I think that Sean Lee might be in the middle of his last season as a Dallas Cowboy, as unfortunate as that is. He's for a long time now been the Tony Romo of that side of the ball. And um, you're right. I mean, Leighton Vander Esch has kind of Dak Prescotted him. While Leighton, I don't think, had his best game on Monday night against the Titans, he's certainly proven over the course of the first half of this season that he's somebody that you can be excited about. You know, Leighton was a pick that everybody chastised and is every, you know, everybody's really excited about right now. But when you have Leighton and Jalen Smith, you know, I talked about on my podcast on uh, on Wednesday, I asked people what they thought was the, the most stable position group on the Cowboys, and they said the linebacker group. And I think that that's fair when you look at the talent that they have just between those two players. So looking at the defense as a whole, RJ, where would you say they win as a unit? What's their biggest strength? Well, Demarcus Lawrence is certainly the war yeah. daddy that, uh, that Jerry Jones has clamored for for a long time. And I would say they win when he wins, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, you know, when Demarcus Lawrence is able to generate pressure, obviously things are a whole lot easier for everybody involved. And it's a lot harder for Demarcus to generate that kind of pressure when David Irving's out, when Randy Gregory's out. And 
That happened on Monday night against the Titans. The Cowboys, when they're down to just Demarcus Lawrence, while yes, he can be a superstar for them, they seemingly don't have enough help outside of him. It's sort of a Dak Prescott effect, if you will. Um, And so I think Byron Jones has just played out of his mind. He's somebody who Cowboys fans are so proud of this season with the switch to corner. And I should mention that that kind of inspires hope for Dak Prescott, that that Chris Richard comes in and right away says, this guy's a corner, and, and all of a sudden he's a beast. Uh, hoping you know that that could happen with Dak Prescott to some degree. But I think the Cowboys win defensively when DeMarcus Lawrence is able to get home to some degree because then Jalen Smith is able to do his thing um, and Leighton Vanderesh is able to cover. He's so flexible in the middle of the defense. And then you've got Byron Jones taking care of things on the outside. So far this season, surprisingly, safety hasn't been the Achilles heel that people anticipated it would be. It, it right. certainly hasn't been a point of strength, but it isn't killing the Cowboys, which is cool at least for now. Would you say that that's their biggest weakness or something that they have to maybe hide the most? I think so at times, certainly. I think, you know, Monday night I would have said it was anybody not named Demarcus Lawrence. But, um, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, it, it certainly is a, a weaker point. Not quite an Achilles heel, but I would say like, uh, like underneath like your hamstring. You know, like I would hate <laughs> to get punched there. You know what I mean? Something like that. All right, so let's let's get into some uh, predictions for the game here. The Eagles are at home. They are seven and a half point favorites, so a little bit over a touchdown. Do the Cowboys? Uh, I, I really want to put you on the spot and say straight up, but I'm going to give you I'm going to give you an out. I'm, I want to say, do the Cowboys at least cover the seven and a half point seven and a half point spread? And do you want them to, or do you want this to be a blowout so you maybe get a coaching change that that is obviously going to have to happen if not now, probably you know sooner than later you know i've never been somebody that has subscribed to the latter logic there you know right. man i hope i hope we just get embarrassed whatever <laughs> um if, if the cowboys ended up winning four games on the season and this was the last one it would be awesome you know it, it would be great to, to get this game it's still a rivalry I, I can imagine you never want to lose to the eagles so i can i completely understand that like if right. you want to tank do it after this week <laughs> right exactly and i will say also i've said this a lot this week i believe i said this last time i was on your show This is the first game of significance for the Cowboys in Philadelphia since Tony Romo broke his collarbone there in 2015 because the two games since, uh, both teams had had everything clinched and were the one seed, et cetera, because it was week 17. Uh, It's also the first game for the Cowboys in Philadelphia that there's a Super Bowl banner hanging uh, at the link. It's also Golden Tate's debut. This is really only the third true uh, sort of Dak versus Wentz game yeah. we're getting, uh, you know, and it feels like we've seen so many, but we really haven't. And so from just a narrative standpoint, I'd love to see the Cowboys win, but I'll say, I'll, I'll say straight up. I don't think the Cowboys win. I don't think they cover. I don't <laughs> think the Cowboys are anywhere near the same team that the Eagles are. And that's because I think the Eagles are, are struggling just a bit, but coming off their bye with Golden Tate and all the energy he's going to bring, he caught all eight of his targets from Matthew Stafford when the Cowboys played the Lions in week yeah. four. I mean, wearing the black jerseys, I mean, I think that's, you know, appropriate. I mean, and and I know that sounds kind of silly, but I really do believe in that type of stuff. I believe that if there's a team, and I hate to give the Eagles so much credit, but if, if there is a single team that can smell the blood in the water when it comes specifically to the Cowboys, it's the Eagles. The Eagles are the perfect team to drive a nail in the Cowboys' coffin. And, and I really believe sort of wearing the black uniforms and, and kind of treating it like a Cowboys funeral, if you will, is something that, that works for Philly. It's something yeah. that uh, you know has caused us a lot of pain. 
And so I don't think the Cowboys I, – I, I do think this game might be kind of close in a cute way at halftime. And then right. I think the third quarter, they just blow the doors off the Cowboys. And I think the fourth quarter is just a party in Philadelphia. Yeah, and that was kind of the, the first meeting before uh, with the Cowboys and the Eagles last year. I think it was, what was a week 11 um, where that was the case. It was close at half. I think the Cowboys actually had a lead at half. And then the, the... I believe it was 9-7 to seven at yep. halftime. And that actually, that was the night that Jerry Jones was celebrated for entering the Hall of Fame at yes. AT&T Stadium. And that was actually the worst loss ever at AT&T Stadium by the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> Amazing. So, RJ, before the season, you had predicted, uh, last question for you, you had, you had predicted that the Philadelphia Eagles would be first in the division, the Dallas Cowboys would be second. Gun to your head, who wins the NFC East this year? I'll say gun to my head, and hopefully I have time to you know sort of talk to my uh, assassin here, that um, I, I think the Philadelphia Eagles are the best team in the NFC East. I truly do believe that. And I think that if they played the Washington Redskins 100 times, they would win 96 of those games. But I think the Redskins are just positioned better right now. I mean, they're already sitting on five wins. They still get to play the Giants. They still get to play the Bucks. They still get to play the Cowboys. Uh, they That's still get to play real nice for them. Yeah, they still get to play the Titans. And granted, the Titans beat both of our teams. Um, <laughs> but so I just I don't envision a, a world where Washington, as many problems and as injuries as they have, I can't see them not getting to ten wins. And I don't know that Philly can get there. As talented as Philly is, and I do think they'll they'll beat the Cowboys uh, both times that they play us. But I mean, I believe you still play the Rams and play the Saints. Um, I, I mean, I just I don't know. That's that's a really tough sort of thing to draw. I right now, gun to my head, I'd say Redskins. But I'm I'm not supremely confident in it. I I would definitely, if if I had to bet, I would bet on the Eagles just because they uh, they've earned the right to be the team people bet on. Love it, RJ. Remind the gentle listeners one more time where they can find all of your work. Blogoftheboys.com is where I live on the uh, interwebs, and you can hit me up on Twitter at RJ Ochoa. RJ, thanks for stopping by, man. I appreciate you. Anytime. And we are back. Mark, the QB Sco Show episode one is in the books. Was it as painful as you thought it would be? It wasn't as painful as I thought it was going to be. I mean, actually, you know what? I'm going to quote from a movie, PCU. You remember that movie? It was actually about, yes, I do, actually. That was actually about where I went to college, believe it or not. <laughs> that was about Wesley University where I actually played football. And do you remember where was that dream sequence when Gunner – was going to like become a Supreme Court justice. Yeah. And he was like asked by one of the, you know, senators, like, did you, we want to thank you for coming in. He's like, I, I knew it would be bad. I do, I did not know it would be this bad. And then all of a sudden his pothead friends are like showing up and he's like, I didn't exhale. Yeah. I'm, I'm reminded of that moment right now. That was a strange <laughs> reference. We've been all over the place. Awesome. I mean, I hope people enjoy it. Like we've talked Toto, we've talked Roman Emperors, we talked the Michael Malley yeah. show, which probably hasn't been referenced by a human being outside of the Michael Malley and probably inside the Michael Malley household for the past well, 10 family, years. Yeah. So yeah, we're all over Thanks. the place. Yeah, family guy so, everywhere. Do you have a strong close in mind, like a, like a, like a catchphrase or, or are we just sort of fading away right here? I mean, I think given my background and my exploits on and off the Twitters, Probably just faded away and faded out of existence would probably be the way to close this thing down. But that's just my thought. I mean, I, I, I think we could just ask people to turn on the lights and let us hang around a little bit longer than we should. <laughs> so it's like Vita Mobile. So it's like Vita Mobile. Or was it another bar? I, <laughs> so, I always forget that one. Yeah, yeah the second, the, the mythic the second mythic bar. The mythic second bar of the night. 
which is just beats when they turn the lights on. So if somehow you enjoyed this show, go to iTunes, give us five stars, subscribe to Bleeding Green Nation. Thank you again, Mark. Uh, we're, we're just going to shut this sucker down, man. Hit the music. Hey, I'm Anil Dash, and I'm the host of a new show called Function from the Vox Media Podcast Network and Glitch. This season, we're talking with experts about why our voting machines are so bad and how that might hurt our elections. We'll also talk with an animator to find out how popular dances from the real world end up in video games. And we're going to tackle the biggest question in tech. Why do so many celebrities use screenshots from that Apple Notes app to make their public apologies when they screw up? You can find new episodes of Function every Monday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And thanks to Microsoft Azure for sponsoring Function.